Our first reading today is from An Everlasting Meal, Cooking with Economy and Grace by Tamar Adler. Great meals rarely start at points that all look like beginnings. They usually pick up where something else leaves off. This is how most of the best things are made. Imagine if the world had to begin from scratch each dawn. A tree would never grow, nor would we ever get to see the etchings of gentle rings on a clamshell. I have spare but sturdy recommendations for beginnings and lots for picking up loose ends. Stale pieces of bread should be ground into breadcrumbs, which make a delicious topping for pasta and add crunch to a salad. Or they must be toasted and broken apart for croutons or brittle crackers, which ask to be smeared with olive paste. Meals' ingredients must be allowed to topple into one another like dominoes. Broccoli stems, their florets perfectly boiled in salty water, must be simmered with olive oil and eaten with shaved parmesan on toast. Their leftover cooking liquid kept for the base for soup, studded with other vegetables, drizzled with good olive oil, with the rind of the parmesan for hardiness. This continuity is the heart and soul of cooking. If we decide our meals will be good, remanded kale stems quickly pickled or cooked in olive oil and garlic will be taken advantage of to garnish eggs or tossed with pasta. Beet and turnip greens, so often discarded, will be washed well and sauteed in olive oil and filled into an omelet or served on warm garlicky crostini. The omelets or little toasts will have cost no more than eggs and stale bread, and both will have been more gratifying to eater and cook. Our second reading is from Blessing the Hands That Feed Us, What Eating Closer to Home Can Teach Us About Food, Community, and Our Place on Earth, by Vicki Robin. When I was a kid, I was presented with a puzzling question. Do you eat to live or live to eat? I didn't know the answer, but wanted to get it right. If I live to eat, that denies all the pleasure of eating, the tastes of oatmeal for breakfast and chopped meat sandwiches for lunch and roast beef for supper, the warmth of dinner with my family, almond joy, but if I live to eat, that means I'm all about food, and that could lead to finger pointing to my size. I was stumped. I couldn't see until my 10-mile diet that the question presumed I had no relationship with the food I eat, that I was an eater without any context. Relational eating says that we never eat out of context. We always eat food from somewhere, always make food choices in the context of history and culture, climate and geography. Even if we are blissfully or woefully unaware of the fact, food doesn't just appear in a replicator on the Starship Enterprise. I now want to go back to the kids who stumped me and say with a bit of my own gotcha, You've got it wrong. I love what I eat. And who grows it? 
I love to feed people. I love being alive here. No one lives outside the web of life. Plants and animals give their lives so that we might live. Farmers or hunters or rangers or foragers harvest this food for us, digging or picking or slaughtering or felling. The food may have traveled only a few feet or halfway around the world with one hand or many hands touching or lifting or sifting or sorting or wrapping or washing it. We chew and savor and soon enough this life is in us, nourishing our bodies, feeding the billions of bacteria that live in our digestive tract. Relational eating heals the illusion of isolation from the hands that feed us and shows us how deeply we belong to one another. And so ends our readings. a story which many of you may be familiar with. Two strangers of some kind, sometimes described as soldiers or monks or simply as beggars or travelers, come into a village seeking to be fed. They ask and everyone answers the same. There is nothing here for you. We don't have anything to give. Times are hard and we barely have scraps to eat ourselves. But these clever strangers have an idea. They hold up a stone and offer to make stone soup. What is stone soup, the villagers ask. You'll see, they answer, and ask for a big pot and some water. Putting the stone in the pot, they boil it and draw a curious crowd. Tasting the stone soup, one says, oh, this would be perfect if only we had an onion. And lo and behold, someone does have an onion to offer. And it goes on like this. Oh, this would be perfect if only we had a handful of beans. This would be perfect if only we had a carrot, some salt, and so on. And before they know it, people are making suggestions of their own. I have some leftover kohlrabi. Would that work? In the end, everyone in the village contributes something, and all are fed better than they would have been if they had kept their scraps to themselves. The trick of stone soup, this clever ploy to get a meal out of the villagers, also was a gift that turned them from scarcity thinking and revealed to them all the abundance they already possessed. This story of community built around a pot of soup is another illustration of just how central to our humanity cooking really is. As Michael Pollan writes in the introduction to his book, Cooked, cooking gave us not just the meal, but also the occasion, 
the practice of eating together at an appointed time and place, new under the sun, for the forager of raw food would have likely fed himself on the go and alone like all the other animals. Or, come to think of it, like the industrial eaters we've more recently become, grazing at gas stations and eating by ourselves whenever and wherever. But sitting down to common meals, making eye contact, sharing food, and exercising self-restraint all served to civilize us. Around that fire, we became tamer." End quote. What meals became occasions for you? What meals drew you together with others? When have you felt most loved, most cared for, most fed? When does a meal reveal abundance to us? When is a meal more than just fuel for our stomachs, but also for our hearts and our spirits? For me, I remember holiday meals with family, my mother baking me a birthday cake, picnics and potlucks, and also restaurant meals where I delighted in the artistry that a chef had brought to my meal. And I also remember times when I was the giver of that magic, baking muffins and taking them to share with my classmates on the morning of a big test, cooking someone's favorite meal as a welcome home, or bringing a casserole over for a family recovering from an illness. I haven't always felt this comfortable with or happy about food, though. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that we humans have a complicated relationship with our food. In a world in which we must take life to feed ourselves, we must face issues of ethics and sustainability as we choose what goes on our plate. In a world in which the labor of others brings the food to the plate, we have to ask whether those laborers were treated fairly. In a world with uneven distribution of wealth and resources, we have to ask why we have a full plate while others go hungry, if we are so lucky as to have a full plate, or we have to stretch and struggle to feed ourselves if our luck was not so good. And in a world with climate change and environmental degradation, we have to ask ourselves if the food on our plate is sustainable or if it contributed through production, transportation, or in other ways to the ongoing crisis. But even if we don't think that far beyond ourselves and the food in front of us, we humans still have a fraught relationship at times with food. Food, good food, feeds us and keeps us healthy. But too much food is bad for us. And too much of the food that is readily available, cheap, and frankly addictive is also not good for us. Nutrition, health, and dieting advice tells us what to eat and what not to eat, and many of us just end up uncomfortable in our relationship with our food. For me, this played out as an eating disorder in my teen years. I was both anorexic and bulimic, and that abusive relationship with my own body and with the food I ate continued for several years. And although I have been well since my 20s, there are still shadows. And to varying degrees, most of us have some of these issues around food. There's no one-size-fits-all solution, and your journey with food and with your own body will be different than mine. But I think it's fair to say, 
our culture does not help us. There are entire industries with large advertising budgets and research departments trying to figure out what flavor and combination of fat, salt, and sugar will hook our brains and bodies on their product. And then there are other industries ready to sell us back our wellness in all the various forms it takes. With all of that pressure coming at us from so many sides, why do we think our relationship to food is a simple individual matter of good choices? As we heard in the earlier reading by Vicki Robin, it is all far more complex and relational than a simple do you eat to live or eat to live question. We are part of a whole web of life and how we eat is relational. It was through cooking that I found my way into a better relationship with food. It didn't happen quickly or easily, but over the years of learning to cook, it became about caring for myself and then caring for others. In fact, for a retreat that I recently did with religious educator colleagues, there was a spot on the registration form to mark down a spiritual practice that we were willing to lead or share with others. And I simply wrote, I'll be feeding you, and this is my spiritual practice. Rather than seeing physical needs as being in competition with spiritual ones or a distraction from them, I conceptualized this using the work of psychologist Abraham Maslow. Maslow's most known for his hierarchy of needs, also known as Maslow's pyramid, because the hierarchy is shown in a pyramid shape. At the base of the pyramid, are physiological needs. Air, water, food, sleep, clothing, shelter. These needs have to be met. They are so intrinsic to life that we will almost always be motivated and seek them out. Next up the pyramid comes safety. Health, personal safety, economic security. Then we come to love and belonging. Here we seek friendship, family, social groups, intimacy. Next, we need esteem, self-esteem, confidence, respect, achievements. And if we can climb all the way up that pyramid, we come to what Maslow called self-actualization. Morality, creativity, problem solving, and spiritual deepening. But that cap that cap of self-actualization needs the rest of the pyramid to be solid beneath it. For me, as a teacher, the wisdom of this is a reminder that it is hard for anyone to learn anything when their stomach is empty. It is hard to build personal self-esteem and confidence when the needs for love and belonging are unfulfilled. And we can go deeper into spiritual practice and reflection after we have gathered together for our stomachs and hearts to be filled by a common meal. Attending to all of these needs for everyone can feel like it's a lot to ask of us. Will there be enough? Enough time? Enough energy? Enough volunteers? Enough food? Enough room at the table? There's a story told about Jesus. Many people came at once, 5,000 people, to hear and learn from Jesus. But no one had RSVP'd. 
So the organizing team, the disciples, hadn't bought enough food to feed everyone. They suggested to Jesus that someone had better run to the store and buy 200 denarii worth of bread. But Jesus was not one for scarcity mindset, so instead he simply blessed all the food that they had and offered it up as dinner. And I don't know how that miracle worked. Perhaps it was a bit like the stone soup. But somehow, five loaves and two fish were enough to feed all, and they still had 12 baskets of food left over. Somehow, it will be enough. When we turn toward each other and offer what we have, it will be enough. And sometimes, it will be more than enough. I mentioned the retreat for my religious educator colleagues where I fed them as my spiritual practice. Well, the decision to take on the food didn't start as a spiritual one. It started in a much more mundane place, the budget. I was on the planning team for the retreat, and we discovered that the retreat center had changed their pricing scale for meals and made it unaffordable for our group. To solve that financial and logistical problem, I raised my hand and volunteered to do the cooking. We had always enjoyed the retreat center feeding us. It accomplished what was needed to get us up good old Maslow's Pyramid into a place where we could learn and deepen our spirits at that retreat. But the food hadn't really been anything special. So I was surprised that in the experience of just trying to fill the gap and provide a logistically needed service, that the food became so much more than simple sustenance. Many of my colleagues expressed that this felt like being loved and cared for. That when food is a gift created and given in love, it feeds more than just our stomachs. Others noticed the bonding and community that was built as we worked side by side to set out and then clean up the meals for one another. When we care and feed one another, when the secret ingredient is love, it's more than simply enough. Of course, often, too often, love is absent from the way that we eat and the way we are fed. We've probably all had meals in institutional settings that felt just about as far from loving as eating can get. Many food programs prioritize a whole slew of other objectives. Cost, efficiency, getting people to eat more dairy, etc., over the care and feeding of one another. I experienced this firsthand when I was running a home daycare and participating in the USDA home daycare food subsidy program, which did prioritize the number of dairy servings that I worked into the day far more than it cared about how the kids experienced being fed. Of course, a quality of love is hard to define or incentivize. But I don't just want to think about the love that was put into the food or served in the kitchen. To truly care and feed one another, we have to remember that we are part of a vast interdependent web of life. And too often, there is not just a lack of love somewhere in the web, but also a lack of fairness, justice, ethical and humane treatment, of people, animals, and the land itself. Industrial agriculture prioritizes profit and efficiency over these other values. When 98% of the chickens produced in this country are produced, processed, and packaged by large corporations, 
The relationship between the animal and the meal is based on industrial values, not relational, respectful, or loving values. And then, in an age of climate change, what happens when food is not only missing love and care and fairness and justice, but is also actively destructive to the interdependent web of life itself? The UN just put out a new report on climate change this August, prepared by more than 100 experts from 52 countries that warned us that the world's land and water resources are being exploited at unprecedented rates that soil is being depleted at 10 to 100 times the rate it is being formed, and that already 10% of the world's human population is undernourished. This will only accelerate. One of the authors of the report, Cynthia Rosenzweig of NASA, said, the potential risk of multi-breadbasket failure is increasing, as all of these things are happening at the same time. These are just some of the reasons why I feel we need to remember how to care and feed one another. We need an ethic of relational eating and cooking that is respectful and responsible toward the interdependent web of life. Relational eating and cooking can be an act of fairness and justice. When we remember that we are in relationship with all who contributed to our meal, the farmers, ranchers, fishers, the animals, the laborers, the cooks, the servers, all the hands and lives in the whole chain that brought that food to us, then we must consider how our choices reflect either a loving and caring relationship or an exploitative one. How we form and care for those relationships will be different for each of us, depending on our own social location, means, and lifestyle. For me, I am in direct relationship with the animals that I will eat as I raise them myself. I'm in relationship with the land I tend for gardens and orchards. I'm also in relationship with local farmers through the farmer's market and the food co-op. Then it becomes increasingly harder to know the quality of the relationship as I travel further out into ever more distant or processed foods. So I try to make my closer relational eating the majority of my eating and I do my research and try to pay attention to the quality of those distant relationships as best I can. Much of what I do won't work for everyone, but we all can reflect upon our own food network and simply try to bless those relationships as best we can. Bless all the hands that feed you and make sure they are paid a fair wage too. In this way, relational eating is just and fair. Relational eating is also about resiliency. Many of my favorite food writers, from Barbara Kingsolver to Michael Pollan to Vicki Robin, who authored our second reading today, have been concerned with eating locally and relationally, not only because the sourcing is more fair, but also because it builds a neighborly form of resiliency. With the rise of environmental degradation and climate change, however, we'll likely need to think farther than the borrowing of a cup of sugar from the, our neighbor or the trading of my extra tomatoes for your extra eggs. When food justice intersects with immigration justice, we have to ask ourselves just how big we can make our welcome table. It can be scary, but I believe that we can add some water to the soup. I believe that the bread and fishes will divide. I believe the welcome table is there for everyone.
because I believe that the care and feeding of one another is about love. And love is a renewable resource. The more it is shared, the more of it there is. In that spirit, I invite all who wish to join me in this ministry of love, the care and feeding of one another, to do so. As we move into a new church year, there will be three lunch programs. Lunch for young adults on one Sunday of the month, the whole church potluck lunch on the second Sunday of each month, and lunch for middlers, those in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, on another Sunday of the month. Additionally, our youth programs will have a lunch served every week as they meet at 12.30. You can also join teams from OUC who provide food at the shelter and at the community kitchen once a month. Potlucks are always an open invitation to help and share whenever and however you can. Additionally, volunteers are sought for all of these opportunities to feed. I'd like to conclude now with another story. This story is attributed to many sources, but each begins the same with students asking a teacher to describe heaven and hell. The teacher begins with hell. In hell, there is delicious food, lots of it. But the people have these incredibly long spoons that they must eat with. And don't try to problem solve this, that you could hold it further down in the handle. No, they have to use the incredibly long spoon. And the spoons are so long that when they turn them towards themselves, they can't get the food into their own mouths. And so they starve in the midst of this deliciousness. The students then ask the teacher, what about heaven? And the teacher replies, ah, heaven is just the same as hell, only in heaven the people are feeding each other. May it be so. <laughs>